Scott, are you on stage? Uh, oh. Only in my mind. What stage no, are you on? No, no, it's glitching, bro. It's just, it's just glitching. So DJ, I'm DJing right now, actually, <laughs> and hosting a panel. So we got zero speakers on the panel. Pretty good day, huh? Yeah, it's just me. It's us. just me and you. It's just me and Talk you. Not even bio, Ryan. We have a bio, biohacking breakdown. Man, you know how many crypto people I see in my, in where I do biohacking? Like today, I saw a gentleman. I probably should name him here. It's like every all, everyone that comes, if they visit Dubai, they come here. It's like a known place. The guy that owns it is a big, big guy in crypto as well. And uh, everyone that lives in Dubai is in the crypto space at least knows about this place. So it's uh, pretty impressed. You, you seem to be the odd one out here, Scott. Dude, I, I live in a relatively small town in Florida where the only thing we're using for biohacking is deep fried food. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm happy for and you. And beer. Very happy for you, man. Um, Thank you. Yeah, you, but we couldn't do it. I mean, I guess you could theoretically do the like uh, basics, you know, certain supplements and correct temperature and sleep monitoring and stuff. But yeah, I can't, if you like, get, go sit in the if you get, no, no, four needles. Food, food, as I said, food, sleep, stress. Uh, is, is pretty much ninety percent of of uh, slowing uh, slowing aging. By the way, Suzu's uh, Suzu's back. I didn't know he's back. And OpenX uh, obviously did really well. He tweeted about it yesterday. Not sure if you saw the news. I saw, I mean, I guess we can call that news. It's so stupid. I get <laughs> out of jail, so that moves the price of the coin. I mean, it should. No, hold on. It, it's no, it's not. It's not. So, so at least we know it's not. But he was always serious. he was always only going for a brief time. It's not like he's yeah, going but away you forever don't, you and don't, got released from good behavior. No, no, because like I get when it comes to legal things, I'm not the, the expert. But someone was telling me today, someone that knows CZ well, he's telling me like Mario, what we're worried about is that obviously he's not allowed to leave the US, and then while he's in while he's uh, even if they jail him for a short period of time, let's say six months, in that six months, they're worried that they'll find more charges to keep him in jail for longer. Not sure if this is a concern. I don't know if we have any lawyers on stage, but that's why it's the thing. I don't think so. Uh, we got to bring Joe. Joe I'm going to invite Joe Carlosari up. Yeah, be good to him in the audience yeah, get, because he's a lawyer. Yeah, got, but uh, okay. I, I think that uh, this is pretty much settled, man. You know, he'll get his sentencing, but yeah, I don't but think I, that the DOJ I, is intentionally digging deeper into Binance at this point. But can they? So that's what I want to understand. Like, this settlement, does it still leave the door open from a legal perspective for them to be able to find more charges against CZ? I'm sure it does. Joe, Joe welcome. Joe, did you hear the question? Like, is it, is it, is it yeah. the settlement? Yeah, the settlement that CZ has, does that kind of uh, almost indemnify him from anything else, anything new they might find? Yeah, the, the, the word is not in, in indemnify, but there is a general protection that's more of a civil, uh, but uh, it, it does protect him from from criminal liability other than tax fraud, because that's going to be discovered a lot of the times after the fact uh, for anything that happened previously at Binance. So the way it works is effectively that when he's entering into this plea deal, the government's going to say, you know, this is for all crimes known and unknown, that type of thing. Um, so, so yes, no, the, the idea that this would somehow, you know, his, his, his place, um, uh, where, wherever he is at, wherever he's residing in, in advance of the sentencing hearing in March, um, excuse me, February, uh, it, it's not going to impact whether they can bring additional charges or not. And keep, keep it in mind that, you know, the monitor is not going to get in there until after sentencing anyway. So that, that monitor, you know, if they were to discover, uh, you know, additional bodies buried there, additional potential crimes, it will be very challenging to bring uh, additional, you know, uh, charges against anyone at that point, just because of the, the the protection that the plea gives you. That's the whole reason why I think it was very smart to, to enter into this deal, right? Why you're, you're removing? 
Well, why? Sorry, I, I cut you off because you dropped out, so I thought you, you glitched. But I'll ask a question though, Joe. Like, why? Um, why keep him in the US though? What's the concern there? Why could I know that's not the topic for today? But why couldn't he come to Dubai? Uh, the, well, the government's position is that he presents a significant flight risk. So they believe that if he were to leave the country, uh, he might get second thoughts and disappear. You know, he, he, he's, he's facing time. I don't blame him. Yeah, he's facing time. And, uh, you know, I mean, listen, if you, if you deal with clients after they, you know, sign in the dotted line, sometimes they get second thoughts and reconsider. And, uh, and uh, you know, I think that's the concern of the government because, you know, part of the reason why I think they are they're going to show a little bit more leniency than you would expect is because they didn't have to extradite him. They didn't have to track him down. They didn't have to go through, you know, foreign governments similar to what, uh, you know, happened with SBF. That takes a lot of time and is, is resource intensive. Yeah. So what about turns out Mario that uh, but turns out that a bunch of uh, crypto bros playing lawyer and pushing narratives were uh, wrong. Never happens. I know it's shocking. Shocking. And on the the, uh, I remember it was it was hilarious. People were tweeting that you know they moved four billion dollars in tether. That that was so totally absurd. Like that because you know based on what we now know about the settlement. Yeah, like they were going to pay uh, the government in Tether, and Tether was going to go, and the United States government was going to go to Tether.io or whatever it is and redeem. Totally. And as you said, we know the settlement is a uh, is a stepped payment option, so it's not all at once. Uh, whatever. We uh, get to that, have our that's fun. That's very here. interesting, by the way, just the, the step payment, um, because apparently in some of the filings we've seen that was specifically requested that they needed time to gather the funds um, and, and, you know, I deal with major settlements, right? Significant ones. And, and yes, there's frequently liquidity issues and you have to gather it together. But given the size of what we know about Binance and how long it apparently they've, they've said they need, you know, 15 months after February. So you're looking into, into to May of, you know, 25 uh, to get that together. That seems a little bit excessive. I was trying to find, you know, some sort of analogs where, you know, this is, this is a similar situation where it's taken that long given the size of the company can't really find it that, that's that's curious to me and, and it's also curious what what assets they're going to liquidate to satisfy that joe is there anything to the fact that sec was like missing from the press release and stuff and and then we had the headlines that sec yeah. is looking the, the, they i mean the sec is still going for the jugular they uh um, their their view is that I mean they released this sort of you know, scathing comment about how they believe Binance has committed FTX style fraud, particularly you know trying to draw them into that. And when you're when you're raising that sort of claim, right, uh, you, you're basically saying the numbers aren't right. That there is there was you know shenanigans with you know the assets they held on behalf of customers and trading using it in customer assets. You know we'll see. Um, they're fighting again for more discovery and the real key thing for them that i think they don't want to give up this and they don't want to be appeared as you know waiving this this claim is that they're going to get the monitor in there and the monitor is going to have full access to every employee record book everything um so it's going to be very challenging for them to uh you know have done something wrong and then cook the books in reverse and have it not be found out by the sec and that is still hanging out there and you know if they they did commit uh, serious fraud and manipulation, right? That's billions of dollars of potential additional claims that can be sought by the SEC. Stephen, before we kick off a market update, uh, anything to add on this topic? 
Yeah, the only thing I would add is, generally speaking, they you know they would have done like an innocence proffers, or like they would have because there's this compliance program that they're putting in place that Joe's talking about. So they would have had to say these are all the things you know they put it out all out on the table, and so if CZ didn't put something on the table, SEC aside, you know that doesn't mean that they can't bring. You know, from my understanding, they couldn't bring additional charges. You know, if they find things while they're in the compliance program. So, I mean, that's Joe? one thing. That, yeah, that's, no, that's, that's the, the right. SSD, but that's the SSD. You, go ahead, you would never plea to it. You'd never plea to that for any past conduct without protection. Any any lawyer recommending the client plea to a crime, giving prosecutors access to effectively, you know, the de facto double jeopardy to plea, to charge you with other crimes. Uh, now, now there, to your point, right, there are requirements in the memorandum that says that he has a continuing obligation to cooperate with the government, right? And that can be a cooperation against other entities, other individuals potentially that are have not yet been charged at Binance, other you know, people with knowledge. So I, I would agree on that part, but, you know, you, it's, it, it's, it would be very unusual for uh, there to be additional charges brought after additional information is obtained from the monitor. Yeah, the other the other thing I would just say is that it's something really curious is that this Western District of Washington, the U.S. Attorney's Office there, like you know, you you would marry. You were saying like, why is he being charged in Dubai? It's, it's a good question. Like those two Estonians that did that five hundred million dollar fraud, right? They, they weren't even in the U.S., but they got extradited here, and that's a very sophisticated country in terms of crypto, you know, enforcement. Like there seems to be, in my opinion, some kind of international agreement. Like the U.S. long arm seems to like trump other countries, even when they never even set foot in the no. U.S. No, no, no. First, okay, I think it was a, no. So, so you, you've got multiple violations of the Bank Secrecy Act. The Bank Secrecy Act is a U.S. law. It is something that the United States gets to police, and no other countries are going to enforce U.S. law. You've also got violations of the uh, International uh, Economic Powers Act, right, and the Emergency Economic Powers Act, and that is for for straight up, you know, funneling money through Iran and money laundering through Iran. So you've got these money laundering charges that are formed in basis of U.S. law, very different from the allegations of wire fraud in like the FTX suit, which most most countries have a wire log analog, so uh, wire fraud analog. So you've got, you've got different, you know, charges and in the information. Uh, and th- I don't really understand why you think other countries would be enforcing U.S. law. And, and basically, the jurisdictional hook is because they knowingly interact with U.S. customers. And they have the messages where CZ was specifically saying we're targeting the U.S. market because that's you know 20% of global volume. Yeah, yes, another, so another uh, attack vector I've seen is um, those, I, I know a couple of companies which I won't mention, but those that have omnibus accounts, um, so if they did OTC trades or they connected via API to the Binance exchange for their customers, um, Binance is requesting all the data for all the customers of every underlying trade of the partner that used Binance as well. So it's going pretty far. Yeah, but the precedent you should remember, though, just for, for those, if, if this activity, if the money laundering activity moves to some other foreign exchange, and that exchange is somehow interacting with U.S. customers. We now know the position of the DOJ 
is that they have full jurisdiction over that. So in other words, I'm not going to name specific exchanges, but if exchange B now gets more money laundering activity from Iran and Hamas and nefarious actors, and there are some U.S. customers interacting with that platform, DOJ's interpretation of the law, and they will bring charges based on this, is that they believe they have jurisdiction over that entity. It can be incorporated anywhere. It can be in any country. doesn't matter. That's their view. So I just uh, saw a piece that just came out on Bloomberg. Like The timing is perfect. It's GMT plus 729. That was oh no, it's a few hours ago. I'm not sure if you guys saw it. So apparently CZ's been in talks with, um, I haven't read the article, but apparently he's been in talks with his executive team about stepping down for months since May. Um, and let me read what else it says. So I'm going to read out exactly what it says. According to Bloomberg, CZ has been mentioning his readiness to resign during regular Binance leadership calls since at least May. A key moment in the case came in the summer of 2022. So a separate point. When investigators obtained internal communications, wondering who that's with, showing that CZ had direct knowledge of specific details of the company's violations of U.S. law, it's kind of incriminated him directly. Um, so just a, it's a long Bloomberg article. Um, I'll pin it at the top in a bit. Uh, but just moving away from from CZ and Binance, because I know we've talked about this a lot, uh, Scott. If you, I want to get into the market as well, because we just hit. I don't know. We hit an all-time high for this year. Is that true, Scott? Yeah, that is we'll true. Uh, almost thirty nine thousand, just just sub thirty nine thousand. I think it was about thirty eight thousand nine hundred, depending on the exchange that you were looking at. I mean, it's been pushing up into this area for seemingly uh, a couple of weeks now. Uh, I'm not looking at the chart at the moment, but I think that you know we all know why this thirty eight to forty thousand area is so key, being that it's sort of the pre Luna level. Just a matter of uh, if Bitcoin's going to go ahead and break a quote unquote bearish ascending wedge, which it always seems to do, uh, and, and push up. Uh, in a bull market, Bitcoin usually doesn't give you those big uh, dips and lower lows that you want. And I really think that Max Payne right now is on the sideline. It just keeps keeps pushing. And that's what we see when Bitcoin is looking bullish. What was, uh, Peter, what, Peter and what Garrett, was of course. No, before, before going to Gareth Peter, what was, the, what was BTC prior to Luna? Was it for exactly 40K or just above 40K? It was in the third. I mean, it depends on which day you look at, but it was right here, 38 to 40. It was the area it was trading in right before that. Oh, so, yeah, I remember. Know, we, price, we, action we'll effectively, price action effectively erasing all of the contagion of 2022 is a pretty big. True. Uh, Gareth? Gareth, you there? Yes. Sorry about that. I was on mute. Um, so so just looking at charting and, and the data, we continue to kind of pop above this 38,000 level. In fact, six of the last eight days, we've hit 38 or pierced 38,000. So, so today we're making the highest of the highs, but two days ago, we had made the previous higher of two highs. So of the highs. So I think the key is going to be where do we close today? I think, in fact, I was on maybe a week ago and we even talked about needing to close on the daily above 38,000 to kind of trigger that next wave of buying in. Um, today looks promising, but again, you know, we still have a long way to go until that daily close. So again, for, for everyone listening, it's, it's that 38,000 closing high. You need to close above that level. And if that does happen, it should trigger the next breakout that should take us probably, again, 42 to 43,000 would be your next stopping point. Okay, and what happens? So once we break the 40,000, what, what, what will be the next uh, resistance level? So 42 to 40,000 and $1. 40,000 and $1. <laughs> what is it? 42 to, 42 to 43? 
Yeah, there's some resistance in the 42 to 43 range. And then after that, the the 48 level is probably the biggest standout to me. That's um, multiple trend lines converging. And there's the, it's the Fibonacci 618 level at around 48 to 49,000. So so for me as a, as a technician, like if we get into the 40s and then that spot approval occurs and we see this, you know, mega spike, I'll actually probably be, be trying to short around that 48, 50,000 level for that pullback. And again, just a short-term trade, obviously, but, um, but it's such big resistance up there that it, it would, it, it's basically like the, the same as that 31, 32,000 level. It's going to take more probably than just one hit of that level to get through. Do you expect the $40,000 mark to be stronger in terms of resistance than the $38,000? Um, no, I, I don't think so. I think on, on the chart basis, I think the, the 40,000 is a good even number. So it's going to have a little bit of a, a, a psychological impact on investors, but overall it's, it's the 38,000 seems to be the bigger one. And then the 40,000, you'll have this kind of general stopping point. I'm sure there'll be some people that are like, oh, let's take a few profits here. Uh, it's been a great run. Um, but I think it probably gets through eventually and goes to that 42 to 43 level. And that'll be a, a pretty strong one, and then uh, and then past that will be forty eight. Yep. Okay. Yeah, the forty eight one is. And what's like, the, that's that's the one that I'm looking at is like holy cow, that's the the behemoth of them all. And what's the other side of that? Uh, the, the 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 support levels. If we can't break through the forty thousand dollar mark, or we break down below thirty eight k. Yeah, so if we were to start trading below 36,500, that would be a break of a key upsloping trend line. So 36,500 right now. Um, and, and if we break that, it opens the door to retracing back to that 30 to 32 level. So that 30 to 32 will be just as strong support as the 48 will be. I mean, they should, they're both 48's resistance, 30 to 32 is epic support now. Yeah, I'm curious to see before we go to, to Peter and other panelists, uh, just get the audience's thoughts on on where they stand with the current market. Because it seems, um, I'll ask one more question, Gareth, as Rand is talking about a retracement, um, mm -hmm. it's, it's long overdue. Do you agree with uh, with that position? I do. I, I do. I, you know, the one of the things I look at for from from traders is I gauge social media and I gauge sentiment. And sentiment now is very lopsided to the you can't lose money. The spot ETF is going to be approved. Then the having comes, and it's like you know, it's it's the easiest no brainer trade. So just throw all your money into into the long trade, and that's always a warning sign to me when everyone thinks it's kind of in the bag that it's going to make them a fortune. Um, that's usually where the market will want to flush those weak hands out first before going to those levels. Yeah, I saw an article. I'm going to find it. I don't know why I closed it. Uh, JP Morgan saying like the the there's just too much excitement around NFTs and and DeFi, uh, the revival of NFTs and DeFi. I'm going to try to find that article and read it out. Uh, but otherwise, uh, uh, where is Peter? They say yes, you are. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Um, you know, Bitcoin, a couple of points I want to make first, you know, periods of short term uncertainty on daily charts are usually resolved in the direction of the trend of the weekly charts. Periods of confusion on the weekly chart usually resolved in the direction of the trend on the monthly chart. So it's, it's, you know, bull markets climb the wall of worry and that's really what we're seeing. So I am really not going to pay too much attention to short-term stuff. I'm not a believer in trend lines. I don't like trend lines. I know some people do, all the more credit to them. I tend to look at what the horizontal levels of resistance and support are. And you take a look at the Bitcoin chart starting in January of 21, all the way through May of 22, 
we've got a lot of resistance overhead. So it's not surprising that this market may not back and fill uh, support. I, I don't think we'll see Bitcoin back under 30,000, but we could definitely see Bitcoin back off into the low 30s. To me, it really makes not no difference whatsoever. On the whole, that's what I plan to do is continue to hold until the market proves me different. I think we're in a big bull market run again in Bitcoin, but I'm not looking for new all-time highs until third quarter, late the third quarter, fourth quarter of 2024. So I don't think the market's going to be in a hurry to do anything. Scott, you agree? Third, fourth quarter of next year? Uh, 100%, 100%. I mean, I think if you just look at the chart, look at the cycles, obviously, you usually start to really see things revving up, you know, six to eight months after the halving, if you believe in the four-year cycle. And that's when that would be. I think Bitcoin spot ETF hype is obviously uh, driven us ahead of where we maybe would have been. But if we follow the cycles, no guarantees, we will, obviously. But, you know, I think that the uh, end of 2024 is when you start to really see the excitement. Then the first half of 2025 is when it goes parabolic, if it follows that. Yeah, but do you, do you think the, 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 if a cycle constantly repeats itself, don't people eventually, don't investors, traders start preempting that cycle and acting before it? So let's say the cycle usually. So when, when do you usually see what month, last cycle, last halving, what month did we see the pump? And then how does that compare to the year? Well, before you, you, you had before? a slow summer. You had a slow oh, the, the summer, which before. we have, have. Yeah, I mean, we had the slow summer, which I think you generally see. And a lot of people will point to when MicroStrategy bought Bitcoin, I think maybe August of uh, 2020. I'm just I'm not looking at it exactly. But around that time is when you started to see the pump. And then September was kind of slow. And then the first day of October, you get the October and then it's a uh, raging bull market from, from there is what we saw in the past. I'm not saying that will repeat. But yeah, end of summer after kind of the dampening volatility of the summer after the halving and things ramp up and then 2025 goes bananas, just like 2021, 2017. But once again, that does not mean it will repeat, but it aligns well with what people yeah, I'm just having a look at the equities as well. Um, Tiger, where, where do you stand on this? I'd love to get your thoughts and James' thoughts as well. James, Tiger? Um, yeah, sorry. Um, yeah, I don't see, at least up until like Christmas, I don't see anything that's necessarily like a fat left tail event that can hinder the run. I, I mean, it's been holding, like, I mean, Bitcoin's been holding 37 eight thirty seven seven okay so that seems fine uh i wouldn't be surprised to see 42 45 at some point by the end of this year uh i think really the only thing that could get us honestly even back to 25 and kind of break the trend below 33 would be if the etfs were uh etfs were not approved by january and if they get pushed to march even like you might actually start getting people doubting whether they're going to be approved or not so maybe that could lead to a correction um i actually had a question for joe but he's not here anymore but that's okay i i i, I want to joe joe is i'm adding him right now he's here yeah i wanted to ask yeah, joe about the cftc uh going after other offshore exchanges they put out a press release i think it was the day or two after Binance was indicted saying that any exchange offshore that is working with clients on workarounds or 
allowing access for VPNs. I mean, I think the VPN thing is a little ridiculous, but I, but I could, I don't think any offshore exchange is immune. But I just wanted your opinion on the CFTC now targeting other offshore exchanges. It seems like Bybit might be in the crosshairs. I don't know. Yeah, there was that sort of vague news about Coinbase yeah. users getting uh, letters about Bybit. I don't think um, that's really. I, a, I don't think we've gotten much. In- yeah, I don't think that's really a Coinbase problem. Though it's more of a more of a buy. I think I agree. I think yeah, I think that's a buy. Yeah, but yeah, I, I just wanted. Um, so any. Uh, go ahead, Jeff. Yeah. So the question was, uh, I missed part of it because I couldn't hear you. Uh, the question was about other potential. Uh, outside of the United States exchanges being targeted? Is that effectively it? Yeah, because the CFTC mentioned something about um, that a few days after the Binance indictment. Yeah, so you've, you, you're basically seeing like two major trends in, and I expect numerous additional suits that you know, you're hearing through the grapevine about. Um, number one, the complaints against, and, and I know you didn't raise this, but, I, but everybody should be aware, so it's not like you know shocking. The complaints against Kraken and Coinbase and Binance US, uh, the the allegations in there about operating as an unregistered exchange and broker-dealer and clearinghouse, those could be copied and pasted and filed against every major US exchange. In fact, I fully expect every major US exchange that's dealing in crypto to face a similar suit sometime, probably if not by the end of the year, into the early part of next year. So that's how, how so on that, Jojo, on, on that suit, I'm actually genuinely curious, obviously for for, for uh, selfish reasons, but those exchanges, how um, it, you know, sh- should it be pretty easy for them to settle those suits or could some of them uh, eventually have to leave the market and, and have significant fines that they may not be able to afford? Yeah. Who's even left? Besides Gemini, Joe. I mean, yeah, but uh, even if they left, clear, bankruptcy, they... FTX US is gone, Binance US is gone. Uh, there's really not, I mean, now you're talking, just to be fair, we're talking about much smaller you, players, you have, the big ones. Have, exactly. But I'm curious, I'm curious about the small ones, though. You have Fortress. I mean, you've got you've got other entities out there. Okay, I don't want to name a specific, you know, others, but exactly. <laughs> I'm thinking, I'm thinking of a couple of yeah, them. But, I don't but it doesn't either. it doesn't really matter, right? I mean, obviously, it's it's there's the potentiality of them resolving it, right? That's that's you know goes without saying, right? They could always do that, but you have to look at their allegations, and their 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 allegations right now are saying you don't fundamentally have a right to exist in in in, in your current capacity. Um, so, so that's it's not just like we don't we want you to delist these tokens. Um, it's broader than that. What they're actually seeking, and uh, I don't think they're going to. I don't think they're going to cease to exist. Agreed. What we're seeing, I mean, what we're going to, what we're seeing, or at least what I'm seeing in my practice, is that exchanges that are overseas that want to access the U.S. markets understand that the U.S. is going to have a very constrained product offering compared to the rest of the world. Right. So you're going to do Bitcoin. You know, Bitcoin, Litecoin, Dogecoin, maybe Ether. Um, I think, you know, the New York Attorney General said Ether is a security. I'm not sure I agree with that view, but you know, neither here nor there. So, so what we're going to see is a bifurcated market where the rest of the world, including the UK, right, which is very similar to the United States, permits spot crypto trading more or less unrestricted as long as you've got the license, right? They're not reclassifying the stuff as a security and saying that oh, if you want to, you know, trade, uh, you know, trade shit coins, you have to have a broker dealer license and set up a transfer agent and basically replicate INX's business model, right? So so what I think we'll wind up seeing is that the US is over-regulating this space to the point of absurdity. And the rest of the world is saying, okay, well, actually, we're going to regulate it, but we're going to let people, you know, let crypto be crypto. You just have to do it with a license, right? So that that I think is the difference. 
Yeah, it depends. But I mean, how the court comes down. I mean, the court may completely reject the SEC's position on this, as you know, Preston. I mean, it doesn't have, you know, this is going to be very contentious litigation fought in several different district courts. Yeah, I think I think the thing, the, the view, the sort of consensus view among practitioners is sort of sit and wait. Um, this stuff is going to drag on for a long time. And, you know, it's looking probable um, that or likely maybe maybe not probable but likely that there could be a regime change in the United States in the next 12 months, in which case crypto, um, you know, might have, uh, might have a somewhat brighter future, but it's, it's more likely that you're going to have a change of administrations, uh, which will help resolve this than, than the cases will actually resolve this in my opinion. Yeah. They're, they're going to go very slowly. Yeah. The other thing, the, the other thing to be aware of is a lot of, if you go on coin market cap and look at all the exchanges, you'll see about 630 of them listed. Um, a lot, a bunch of them are actually proxies for Binance. Um, so when, like when I, I spent a lot of time in China and met many of the exchanges out there, um, and many of them were Binance, um, just under a different name, rebranded, API'd in. Um, a lot of the, a lot of our industry took the opinion that any trade under $2,000 didn't require KYC in the beginning. So there was a lot of people, a lot of US users that onboarded to these exchanges based upon that assumption. And there still are some exchanges that are doing that. Um, so there's many like proxy exchanges. And, and that's why I think the fact that Binance is now asking for all the data from everyone that had an Omnibus account, and now you've got the, the supervisor or whatever it's called um, in there, you'll see you'll see like a, a web of exchanges, I think. And and now you'd expect the wash trading to disappear. Like I remember when there was a massive crackdown on the Chinese exchanges, I think in like 2015 or something. And then there, were, there was wash trading of billions of dollars and you had OKX and all the others at the top. And then suddenly you had a massive drop in volume. And so now you'd actually start to get real data, real volume, which is useful because you know, we, we want real data. We want to know how many people are, how much volume is interacting with this industry. So I look, I look forward to, to that. And, you know, on hey, Mario, the US side, oh, go ahead, Simon. Yeah, yeah just on, on the US side, all the US needs to do is follow the way the world is going. Financial Action Task Force put out guidance, said that every country needs to have a virtual asset service provider regime. And all the US needs to do is have a virtual asset service provider regime. My the only reason that they're not, it seems, is because CFTC and SEC and all the others are in a money grab to figure out which ones can get the can get the checks. And then maybe you'll get a virtual asset service provider regime and we can have this unified approach rather than saying three assets are CFTC and the rest are SEC and the rest are money transmitters or something. Just just unify, do virtual asset service provider regime. All the legislation has been written globally. Um, and and U.S. just needs to do what the rest of the world. U.S. Doing. isn't going to follow. Yeah, I, I think that makes sense. U.S. isn't going to follow. But you did give a nice segue. I think to something worth talking about. Uh, getting accurate numbers. Um, and we have James here from CoinShares. Well, uh, we forgot. Yeah. Oh, sorry, because the, the Colombian president just became a Bitcoin holder, which is pretty cool to say. Uh, it's another president. I think how many? I don't know how many presidents are Bitcoin holders, but uh, there's another one to add to the list. But where does he buy yeah, it? I was gonna, he, yeah. he takes on these peps. <laughs> Samson, Samson, I saw Samson Mao was there with him and, uh, you know, was uh, orange orange filling him in real time, I saw. But uh, the I think the biggest, one of the biggest narratives of the week, and this comes directly from James and from CoinShares research, research 
is that uh, we had the I believe it was three hundred and forty six million. I'm off the top of my head, but talked about this morning in inflows into digital asset products this week it was the biggest since 2021. Ethereum, I think, has seen a hundred million in the past four weeks. Solana and Ethereum, obviously, leading outside of Bitcoin. Uh, BITO, the Bitcoin futures ETF, which everyone knows doesn't accurately track spot and is trailing by at least 10% a year, still seeing its highest AUM. James, I mean, what's going on here? We're seeing massive inflows into this. Yeah, I mean, if we're talking about, you know, technicals and how things might correct, um, it, I don't feel that there's a sense of that in the fund flow data. There seems to be a real positive momentum in the last month and a half, we've seen $1.8 billion flow into the market, primarily Bitcoin. Uh, uh, sentiment towards Ethereum has been the weakest of all the altcoins this year. And that's seen about now about 150 million inflow. So we've actually reached a point where the, the net flows year to day are positive for the first time. So there's a real marked turnaround in sentiment. I'm not necessarily saying that these guys are great at timing the markets or anything like that. Um, but yeah, I think that's a, a really positive thing. And I've just been road tripping all the way across Europe for last, just being in Frankfurt yesterday. And yeah, sentiments are really improving. There's so much more interest. People are taking it much more seriously. And just on the point on, on Binance and, and regulation, people really see this as this action by the SEC as really just cleaning up the industry, um, making it, bringing it in line with traditional finance. Whether you like that or not is another question, but... By DOJ. Sorry, I just want to be... Yeah, by DOJ. Yeah. Um, yeah sorry, and to that point, James, I think what's interesting, going back to what um, Tiger and, and Joe were talking about before, I think that finance action from the DOJ gave some clarity as to how punishment may come down, even if larger entities are charged in the future. Maybe not necessarily from the SEC, which is civil, but the fact that Binance, which people feared was going to completely be obliterated by the United States government, paid a fine like any other huge Wall Street institution when they do something wrong. I mean, we've seen Wells Fargo, JP Morgan, these guys pay tens of billions of dollars in these fines for money laundering and all these things. To see Binance treated that way and get to continue on with monitorship, that's obviously a narrative for more confidence, I think, on these inflows. And obviously, I think the spot yeah. ETF is the other one. I mean, it's like I, Game of Thrones, wasn't it? They... They basically Binance, the company with the biggest, deepest pockets, just took the knee and bowed down to the SEC in some respects. And, you know, yeah. I think that's a really positive thing. And just also, just before other people talk, I just, I think it's worth highlighting with Binance in particular, we did suspect for some time they've been wash trading of some sorts. And if you look at Binance's market share, it started the year at 85% of Bitcoin trading turnover and it's now under 30 they obviously been cleaning up their act. A lot less wash trading is going on. You know, it's it's becoming a lot less theoretically a systemic risk to the industry as well. Yeah, I think I think that DOJ also probably recognized the systemic risk if they were to have seized the exchange, which tells you they don't want to smash it. They want to. They want more control. Control. Yeah. yeah, I mean, remember those reports, Tiger, a few months ago where basically I mean, I mean, listen, the, it came out in the Wall Street? I was very openly concerned, obviously. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm saying like it was the Wall Street Journal or the Times that had that report a few months ago that was very strange where seemingly the DOJ had tipped their hat saying that they were concerned about the market effects of yep. an action, right? And it was never really vetted, but that, that ended up sort of being a bit of a premonition about what what was to come. 
And I think, you know, we can be concerned about all these other players, but like if Binance got this treatment, I don't think there's anything that can be horrid in the future. I think people will pay their fine and move on. But I really think that this contagion narrative is it's dying because the biggest players have been attacked. And like Joe, to your point and what everyone was saying, Coinbase, Kraken, Binance, these things are going to take years. And we're going to be like through another cycle before we get clarity on any of those. I wonder if this is a ploy. I mean, in terms of going after these offshore exchanges, also I remember those exchanges are a big source of alts of liquidity, right? So I wonder if this is a play to force a liquidity to migrate onshore, at least for the American users, as opposed to them flocking to offshore exchanges. I don't know. It seems like that might be an angle. Yeah, it also seems like maybe all of these departments and regulators aren't necessarily in agreement with one another. I mean, we have at the top here, US Gov wants more power, which seems very vague, but it's very specific to Deputy Treasury Secretary Wally Adiemo's uh, statements that we've talked about here. But, you know, he went in front of the Blockchain Association, basically said, you know, crypto is being used once again, terrorist funding. Uh, I think he said for like child trafficking, illicit drugs, all the narratives that we've been hearing, he just reiterated, even after some of them have been largely debunked, said the Treasury needs more powers for sanctions. So as much as we have optimism around a Bitcoin spot ETF and there's inflows, I think it should be very clear to people that many parts of the United States government are still actively uh, against the industry. The anti-crypto army is absolutely not going anywhere. So I do think that like we'll see a lot more action coming from all of these departments, regulators, et cetera. But I just don't think they'll be as impactful in the future. I don't know if anyone agrees yes, or disagrees cool. I with that. What the bit I just don't get is that they've already got all the laws and regulations they need. Like exchanges are regulated. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean governments them. wanting more power is not exactly, I well, guess, what, a breaking headline. What's What's the difference? It's just operate. You know, once you're in the centralized world and you're using an exchange, is is no different than a stockbroker or a or a bank, or any other financial service. Okay, company. so, so you, you have to you have to separate a couple of different things because there are the, there's the discussion, the broader overreaching, you know, money laundering discussion and and terrorism discussion, all those sorts of issues, and you got the securities question, which the government is implying, uh, you know, the SEC is uh, uh, interpreting a very I think strange interpretation of Howie and his progeny. Um, but that's like a separate issue, right? That has not been resolved. That will continue to be fought. And you will, will continue to deal with the money laundering, you know, AML type issues. But then you've got like sort of the third issue, which is that because there is not as much of uh, surveillance and compliance internally within these exchanges, there exists a continued potential, probably higher than traditional markets, for fraud to be committed, a la FTX style fraud at these exchanges. The, they're all really separate and they all have to be treated sort of with different regulators and different law enforcement involved. Um, but the, 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 the scariest part of it, you know, the real thing that can really disrupt the market is the fraud aspect. You know, if there's, there's actual fraud, exchanges do not have the assets they claim to have. Those are the destabilizing ones, the FTX style. And I think uh, to the point that was raised, like as you get more and more sets of eyes in inside these exchanges, that's where you eliminate some of that potential. And that's what the market really, I think, is concerned about. They're not concerned as much about the SEC side. 
I, I think that 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 absolutely makes sense. And again, I think that we're starting to see clarity. Did actually, I had Carlo, the lawyer who we often have on here. He's not on here today. Sent me a little while ago the letter that Circle sent to uh, Chairman Brown and Senator Warren. Did any of you guys see that? Because it's really really interesting, and it it is a part of this conversation. I can just read you some select parts. Circle refutes false claims on illicit financing. So obviously, this is USDC Circle. This seems like uh, they're coming out with strong language against this narrative about terrorist financing, etc. These are the few things that they went into. First, they, they kind of bullet pointed a few things. Circle has long made combating illicit finance activities a guiding principle of our business. Okay, we've seen the same from Tether saying that they're helping law enforcement to fight against uh, illicit financing. Second, which I found curious, Circle does not, quote, bank Justin's son. Neither Mr. Sun nor any entity owned or controlled by Mr. Sun, including the Tron Foundation or Hobie Global, currently have accounts with Circle. Circle terminated all accounts held by Mr. Sun and his affiliated companies in February 2023. So Circle making a point to distance themselves from Justin Sun. So if you want a uh, glaring idea of who might be targeted next, I think that gives you a at least a good hint. Third, so, Circle is a highly regulated fund. Really quick. So Just let me uh, get through these. And we'll, yeah, go ahead. I was just saying, I saw a very funny tweet about this. Someone said, you know, you're in trouble when uh, when your former banking providers are saying, listen, he wasn't on the SDN nationals list uh, when he was banking with us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And then third was that they made it clear circles, a highly regulated financial services firm, blah, blah, blah. But here's the one that got me. Finally, no other digital asset company has advocated more than Circle for a comprehensive federal framework to govern stablecoins. Now, remember, this is a letter to Sherrod Brown and Elizabeth Warren. And here's what it says at the end, after all of this strong language. Circle supports Senator Warren's and Senator Marshall's recent amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act to strengthen AML provisions in the digital assets industry. We also share broad agreement with Chairman Brown's recent letter to U.S. regulators calling for a stronger disclosure regime regime in digital asset markets. So all that strong language, but the letter was really uh, bending the knee to Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> you guys read it. So I found that very, very, very interesting. I actually invited Dante Desparte uh, to come, but uh, uh, didn't hear back in time. But uh, really interesting. I think that we're starting to see a very large bifurcation here between offshore and onshore and a real and a real partnership with the United States government from certain entities and not from others. I mean, Tiger, you obviously have been sort of uh, on the uh, aggressive side towards Tether. I mean, I think your avatar, let me look, is that literally Paolo with laser eyes? Don't so uh, what do you make of this? King. Don't bet against him. <laughs> <laughs> but no, look, I think... You know, I mean, like I said the other day, I, I, I think the outcome of Binance kind of changed my view on how the government might handle Tether, right? Like, I, I was very, very, very concerned for a while that it was going to be something a little bit more nuclear. But, but you know, I think that they might just handle them in a similar way that they handled Binance, you know, because... It's a, it's a similar situation, you know, like lack of AML, KYC protocols and stuff like that. And uh, I don't know. I, 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 I do think that Tether has a lot of problems, uh, particularly on the banking side. You know, it's this large financial organization at this point that is, you know, relying on three Bahamian banks that are very small. 
Um, so I think more of the the issue with Tether is U.S. dollar liquidity rather than like what the DOJ is going to do at this point. Um, so yeah, I I would like to see a little bit more transparency from Tether. I think everyone would. Um, you know, I know. I mean, we're never going to see. I think we're never going to see Tether's old books. Probably right. not. And I, and, think, and I think I think pre twenty twenty, it was probably a massive mess. And it's probably I agree. a little bit of a. It's probably less of a mess now. I think that just the way I think what'll be interesting is is you know I don't know if you read the uh, the FinCEN letter from uh, from for Binance that was put out in the indictment, but they were discussing customers A and B. And I think it was customer B and they highlighted it as a large uh, a Chicago-based uh, crypto trading firm. Now, if I had to take a guess who that is, I would say it's Cumberland, which is a, uh, a subsidiary of DRW, which is big in equities uh, of market making. Um, and I wonder if the DOJ is possibly trying to get information about Tether from big Tether customers. Cumberland was the second largest customer after Alameda of USDT. So, yeah, I, I, I think that also a lot of the arrangements that Tether has with these VIP Customers like Cumberland and Jump Crypto will probably be scrutinized more because I think that a lot of those USDTs might not be fully backed by actual dollars. I think it's like a lot of corporate. You think IP. that's still? I you don't still, know. You think that's I mean, still I, right? Because my impression would, love, would be would that much like finance, I would love to be able to right. answer the question. You know, but yeah, I think they're under a major know. microscope. I think they're under a major microscope, and I think it is very uh, like Binance, as you said, that maybe in the early days when the kind of, you know, there were no uh, laws on the road in their mind, and it was the Wild West, these companies probably did a lot of things. But under this spotlight and this much scrutiny, I've got to imagine that they're at least uh, trying to, to be completely compliant. Simon, or James, and then Simon. Yeah, on James. Very, very briefly, I mean, Tether has been really tested. In, during real crisis points in the markets, it's delivered $10 billion worth of liquidity in a week quite easily. And yeah, we've seen the, the kind of the, the spread from the, the, the peg widen a little bit, but I think it's had you know, a couple of really big market tests and delivered every time. So we can sit here and pontificate. Yeah, it's the same, by the way. No, listen, yeah. they're, a, they're a Lindy's Law beneficiary. I will, I will acknowledge that. They've they've had to endure a lot. I just think that if they're going to stick around, I don't think that the current form of their operation can stay the same. Okay. I think that they might Tiger. have to change a lot of things. Tiger. So, okay, it, it, from my perspective, and I think it's it's it, the issue of the, their liquidity and their books are really secondary to the issues that were explicitly raised back at the end of October in the letter from Senator Lummis, which was that we believe these entities are violating the Bank Secrecy Act, violating the International Economic Powers Act, and we believe they're laundering money. So if, if you, to the extent there's a risk for Tether, uh, uh, you know, to me, the big risk is exactly what the, the, 
the information char- uh, contained, the charges contained against Binance, right? Right, and, and, that's, and, that's, is, and that's what I said earlier. But they would just pay a huge fine and move on. Happen. Right now we it's see the roadmap, happen. and we know they no, can no, 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 they would not. The roadmap would be to get it, get it, get a monitor in there. That's the mon- That's the roadmap. And what is what is the crypto ecosystem look like with a monitor in in a tether? Ouch! I think it would be a huge benefit. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's what Joe says. So, like, the, the problem is when you're analyzing these stable coins is you try and put all risks into one risk. Um, so, if you're looking, for example, one risk that was pointed out is Bohemian banking. Well, um, the Bohemian banks, they tend to use um, a, a custody and trust model. And so, when you looked at USDC, it depegged because it's using a US fractional reserve bank. And so, a US fractional reserve bank introduces a new risk um, and therefore you need FDIC to alleviate that risk but the off- many of the offshore banks they're not leveraged like that they're not they're just simply buying treasuries and doing the same as the stable coin so you've got like a stable coin built upon a trust and custody bank which is significantly lower risk because it's full reserve but then you introduce different types of risks well are they enemies of the US and the US does do they try and do that so then You've got the second type of risk, which is at what point do you consider it a U.S. company? Um, So is it going to be classified that anyone, any American that owns Tether, therefore makes Tether a U.S. company? Because that just breaks the entire model of the stablecoin. Or is it that you just allowed them to redeem and do the on-ramps and off-ramps? And then you look at the risk. So, you know, in terms of are they bad? DOG went through all their books. They already published all that stuff. And I wouldn't imagine them to have deviated far from that since DOJ went went through all that. And then you have the attestations on top of that. But has anybody used Tether in order to um, commit terrorist financing? Well, is there a good AML program on the onboarding and offboarding? And then do they consider any transactions? But, I mean, to be specific, though, that means to be specific, you're saying has anybody or it should be saying has anybody who is a direct Tether customer done that? Because there's a confusion about people who have a Tether account and people who maybe like are moving Tether between second parties or third party exchanges. And that that can't be. Exactly. So that's where is the U.S. going to break the model and say if if. a terrorist organization is using Tether, then that's Tether's fault. Uh, that just breaks the entire stablecoin model. That will affect USDC and everything just as much as Tether. But if they yeah, and rationally that out, means it's Apple's fault. And rationally that means it's Apple's fault when a drug dealer makes a phone call to do a drug deal uh, using their iPhone. Exactly. I'm not saying they won't take that argument, but it's the same. I mean, yeah, look, yeah. like I also acknowledge that Tether actually serves a real purpose in terms of freezing addresses of illicit actors like they've you know they've historically done that they've made it easy for the fbi and you know whomever else to to do that and that's and that is you know that has its value obviously i just think that it is and also here's another angle like if if the government is going after more offshore exchanges right these offshore exchanges are obviously very big distribution channels for usdt So I don't know if they're going after these offshore exchanges in a way to potentially choke off USDT distribution. I don't know. Maybe that's an angle. And to have more trading in USD as opposed to USDT. 
I have no idea. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just spitballing. But I think that it's very possible that Tether, you know, if you have to have a monitor at Tether, it's, it's, it's very possible that they are a smaller operation at some point. And there, in my opinion, will be more stable coins on the market over the next few years. And that is a healthy thing. Well, I think Tether's issue from a legal standpoint is that they're not subject voluntarily subjecting themselves to supervision under the Bank Secrecy Act. If if I were the DOJ, right, and I wanted to go after them, you know, for for a particular violation, that's what I'd do. So if you're if you you can issue stable coins all day long, as long as you do mandatory reporting, KYC everybody under the BSA, and 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 comply with the U.S. rules on that side. They're a, they're a FinCEN registered money transmitter, so they have to file all suspicious activity reports and have to follow all those rules. Right, but like, how did? I guess my question is, and I've I've thought about this a bit, but not not terribly much. So Tether obviously has a lot of transactions that they don't trace, right? Because you can go get USDT on any number of exchanges, and Tether's not going to know who you are or what you're doing with it. They're only going to check you when you when you check in and when you check out, right? But if you decide if you try to make a withdrawal, and most people, ordinary folks on the ground, can't withdraw from Tether. So I guess the question is, is that sufficient? that they're doing that and that they're screening for Americans there? Or is the DOJ going to you know, eventually come back and say, actually, you needed to know everyone who is using your system? I think that's kind of for a 60, 70 bill. I think they're one of the largest purchasers of US treasuries in the world, So, which kind of makes it a, a, a policy problem rather than just a law enforcement problem if you decide you're going to go after them, because at the moment, treasuries are kind of not as popular as they used to be. <laughs> so people don't want to buy them. So if all of a sudden, I mean, if you think about it, one thing that I always said back back in the um, uh, so there's a there's an economic crisis back in the 1700s called the South Seas Crisis, and in that the British government actually offloaded all of its debt in exchange for exclusive rights uh, to you know, ply the South Seas and do trade with South America, which turned out to be useless. One thing I've always thought is maybe it could be possible for the United States to do that with Tether and say, listen, let's say Bitcoin goes to a million dollars a coin and all of a sudden there's this need for US dollar liquidity out there. Tether's in a really good position to just suck up all of the treasuries everywhere in the world. And I don't know, maybe the DOJ looks the other way and says, "Okay, well, get your license. We'll enter into a deferred prosecution agreement and you can do ABCDE because now you're serving this valuable function of converting, you know, Bitcoin money into treasuries. Right or acquiring treasuries to back up your U.S. dollar, you know, U.S. dollar issuance that you're using, you know, your users are, are providing so they can go buy Bitcoin. So, so, I'm, so I'm just gonna push back on that just for a second. So as it stands currently today, right, Tether is a very, it's a rounding error in the U.S. Treasury market. I know that it's a lot of treasuries in like an absolute sense, but in like a relative sense, like it's zero point three percent of the treasury market. It is a very, very small. It is a $25 trillion treasury market. So I I, I will just push back on that a little bit. It, yeah, it, if they get so big, maybe it becomes more of a concern. Like if for some like reason- Like 50 times bigger. Basically they have to be 50. Yeah, they have to be 50 times bigger, you know? Like, you know, and, you know, if they keep growing, yeah, they're on their way to becoming like, almost like a, like a, like a shadow GSIP of some sorts, right? If, you know, so, but I don't think that's necessarily why the DOJ wouldn't do anything as it currently stands. That's all I'll say.
Yeah. I, I blacked out when Preston said uh, that Bitcoin was a million dollars and uh, we were basically dominating the entire world. So I, I didn't hear anything after that. Thanks, Preston. <laughs> yeah, then you realize you had all your money in Tether and not Bitcoin. Uh, they're just dollars. Well, I think hey, we're good. Mario. Yeah, I think we're good. I think that was a great way to end the week. Ah, oh, you're going to cool. miss us so much on Saturday and Sunday, Mario. Don't cry. And Rand's not even here. You miss him for another day. Terrible. Yeah, I'm just reading the article by the block. So JP Morgan says, signs of it. That's what I mentioned earlier. Signs of a DeFi. You guys talk about Tether for the millionth time. I'm looking at something more interesting, more recent. Signs of a DeFi and NFT revival are only tentative. It's too early to be getting excited about the recent recovery in the DeFi and NFT areas. Ethereum does not appear to have benefited much from the recent DeFi and NFT revival. Let's see what JP Morgan has to say about NFTs. If you think that um, G, if you think that JP Morgan's opinions on NFTs is what's more interesting, yeah, no. uh, <laughs> while we do not, while we do not doubt, like then again, what I'm going to listen to the to the NFT bros. While we do not doubt this recent revival in DeFi NFT activity, I like how they put them together in DeFi slash NFTs, like one thing for them. Literally, nothing <laughs> is a positive side. <laughs> we're, we're, yeah, no, we believe that it's too early to be getting excited about it. Um. And then let's see if there's any other interesting quote. The revival is pretty much Sears, Robux, and Tesla stock. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Anyway, this is, I was reading that. Cool. Um, all right. I think we'll see everyone on Monday. And this is it, unless there's something major on the weekend. Bye. Otherwise, enjoy your weekend, everyone. Ah, oh, you dropped out, Scott. We can wrap it, Nast. We can end the space.